Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. In this episode, I have invited back as my guest, Dr. Michael Hahn. Michael is University Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Church Music, an adjunct professor and director of the Doctor of Pastoral Music program in the Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, and was also one of my professors during my church music training at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. In my experience with and observation of Michael, I have known him to be one who was both broadly and deeply aware of what has gone on and is going on with Christian and church music. Drawing on that awareness, Michael has been immensely creative and innovative in the use of music for the work and worship of the church. In addition, he provides provocative and challenging insights that are, at the same time, sources of great wisdom and foresight for guiding Christians in general, Christian musicians in particular, and the church at large in growing in faith and faithfulness to our Lord's kingdom. My first conversation with Michael for this podcast was about his book, One Bread, One Body, in which he worked with an eclectic team to explore cultural diversity in worship. The context of that conversation was the use of music as a means of facilitating racial reconciliation, or, as I have learned from Meta Commerce, a more accurate phrase is racial healing. For this episode, I have invited Michael to discuss the book he co-authored with a team of outstanding church music scholars, titled New Songs of Celebration Render. In this work, Michael and his team explore the blossoming of creativity in congregational song in seven traditions or streams. Even though the book is not fresh off the press, having been published in 2013, it continues to be vitally timely. As Christianity in the United States and Europe are experiencing significant decline, and as it is grappling with its terrible legacy of complicity with the evil of colonial imperialism and white male supremacy, in my mind a major contributing factor to that decline, and as Christians are seeking new paths to move forward in better ways, this work reveals how the Holy Spirit is still moving in, with, and through the church, and how congregational song is playing and can play a crucial role in the church's revitalization and growth in all of that term's connotations. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for being back with me. Glad to be here again. Um, So let's begin with you kind of talking about uh, why you gathered your team of scholars and uh, set out on this project. Well, it was too big a project for any one person to do. Uh, because uh, my assumption was that uh, using the the idea of a stream, as opposed, I want to get away from pigeonholes, the idea of streams, that uh, there were streams that were welling up from different kinds of faith perspectives, some denominational, some cultural, uh, but different faith perspectives, and they had representative kinds of musics, uh, to use a an ethnomusicological approach to it uh, in the plural. So uh, while I would be acquainted with all of these, uh, I thought it would give the book a lot more uh, validity if I found people that were firmly rooted within these various streams uh, that I was looking at. So I came up with with seven, uh, the idea of a, a Roman Catholic liturgical renewal stream uh, coming out of Vatican II in the, in the early 60s. Uh, at the same time then, and uh, working in hand-in-hand in some ways, the what I call the uh, Protestant renewal or Protestant stream, uh, contemporary Protestant classical hymnody. <laughs> right. um, and then uh, a, a major one, of course, for the United States would be the African-American stream. Um and in all of these streams, there are highly nuanced with lots of, you know, might might say rivulets, <laughs> uh, 
and they're not just smooth and placid. So um, they're much more complex in many ways. Then the uh, the fourth was was perhaps the most waning of the streams in terms of new material, and that would be the uh, the gospel song, especially uh, in its height in the late in the nineteenth and, and 20th centuries, the revival tradition, the white revival tradition. Um, there are examples of that, and I think the Gaithers and the um, Billy Graham Crusades, for example, really gave a boost to that stream. Uh, but it, it's a very strong performance stream, but I'm not sure a lot of new material are being written in that, uh, composed in that stream, because the contemporary Christian has really taken over in many ways. And then uh, one that was a bit of a surprise to me as I started to examine the various sources was a folk stream. Um, and uh, it's been all along in, in, uh, in the history of the church, but especially in the 60s, uh, uh, I, I often say that the first one in that folk stream was the Lord of the Dance by Sidney Carter. Mm. Uh, it wasn't the first one, really, but it's sort of the granddaddy of that. Uh, a little bit in your face, very pithy language, guitar bass, especially acoustic guitar. And then the uh, contemporary stream, which uh, would, would really be what many people call CCM, contemporary Christian music or contemporary worship music, uh, uh, a commercialized plugged-in stream uh, that, of course, is very large. And then finally, uh, one that is a bit of a catch-all, uh, the uh, Global South stream, you might say, right. as a whole, uh, and, and what's happening. Um, so I really basically uh, outlined the streams themselves and the nature of those, and then uh, did most of the last uh, stream. But even in that one, I involved one of my former students, uh, Dr. Sui Hong Lim, to look at the Asian part of it a little bit more. And uh, since it was my book, my chapter is the longest, but that's the way it is. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, But also, I think there's uh, uh, more than that. The Christianity is is bigger in the global south in terms of numbers than it is now in the, you know, the western north uh part of the world, the United States and Europe, Canada, that kind of thing. So there were several reasons for that. Um, and then these streams often run into each other like streams do. Um, and they crisscross and they shape the land itself, but the land also shapes them. Uh, you know, so a little, a little bit of my, my um, elemental ge ge uh, geology I had back in college came into, <laughs> into play. So what I really wanted to get get across was the idea uh, that we either have contemporary or traditional just doesn't work. First of all, uh, binary choices are a problem. Right. I really don't think God works in binary choices. I think it, it's some kind of spectrum of a range of creative possibility, especially where the arts are involved. Uh, and this is an attempt I would uh, simply say that, not the last word, an attempt to propose one way one would look at that. So um, I, for me, these are not just musical streams, but they're, uh, they have a certain theological thrust. Um, in the broad sense, uh, you get a very broad sense, there's a certain relationship between musical style and and theological liturgical use. Uh, in, um, for example, the folk stream is going to be basically more acoustic instruments. Uh, not, there's not going to be, uh, you know, pipe organs. Oh, these these songs can't be played on those. But in its in its uh, kind of, I think, most authentic form, whatever that means, uh, these this is an acoustic uh, portable sound that can go any place. The, the contemporary Protestant classical hymnody uh, then is probably much more associated with an organ uh, that uh, uh, is used within the context of, of uh, worship. Uh, the Catholic stream is pretty complex. It could be an organ, it could be an uh, electronic keyboard, it could be guitar mass. <laughs> There's a lot of different styles. 
uh, in the uh, African-American stream. Again, there's there's diversity, but you're going to be finding much more the Hammond B3 or, right. or various kinds of keyboards and, and percussion, uh, sometimes piano and organ together. But that especially, the old piano and organ together was the gospels, the, 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 especially the gospel style of the uh, revival time. Um, and then uh, when you get to the... Uh, uh, contemporary Christian, of course, there's quite a bit of diversity as well, but there's usually a kind of sound and ensemble that uh, is associated with that. And of course, it's quite plugged in. Right. Uh, and then finally, in the in the global, which makes it, or what I call global ecumenical, this makes it extremely difficult uh, for some because it's it, it varies from region to region and tribe to tribe. Well, you talk about the primacy, the importance of, of congregational song having a primary role in the music of worship. Kind of talk about why that is. The reason, uh, two couple of reasons. First of all, um, I think congregational singing overall is in the DNA of Christianity. Not all world religions have congregational singing. If you were a Taoist, you might uh, stop on the way to work and and offer incense uh, joss sticks and, and leave some some offering, but you wouldn't sing with people. Um, uh, Muslims would not call what they do singing; they they would call it prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, um, congregational singing as we know it is is not um, uh, necessarily universal, but it's waxed and waned in, in, in the broad spectrum of things in Christianity, but it basically is in our DNA. And of course, we draw that from uh, the Jewish uh, context and uh, the manifold ways in which it's expressed around the world. Um, then, uh, so I, I have to delimit a little bit. Of course, um, we have other ways of making music, instrumental music, choral music, uh, various kinds of ensembles, but uh, it's a big enough topic just to work with the people's song. So that would be the the first thing. But then I see the people's song, uh, regardless of faith tradition in in the Christian broad Christian spectrum of things, as a a way to uh, uh, to articulate and to nourish. Uh, the theological faith of the community. It's done in a lyrical way. It's not done in a you know a five point sermon or a a, a Sunday school lesson. Uh, but oftentimes it it sticks in that uh, the, the idea of singing and and words together shape uh, the way we think and articulate the faith and. Uh, we have to shape it and articulate it in some way. It's not just a logos that floats around up in the above our heads someplace, and uh, we and not that we can't feel and sense God, but we like to be able to articulate it. And lots of times, the writers of hymns, a congregational song, have a way of putting things um, that that's it. You know, I never knew how to say that idea before, but that's. That's what I've been feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the the great thing about the, the last fifty years, give or take, is that uh, the there's a plethora of these songs, and because of technology and the nature of dissemination and the migration of peoples, we have so much more access to a tremendous variety. I find that personally exciting, but it's scary for a lot of people. <laughs> it's scary for a lot of musicians, and I understand that because uh, you know I was I was trained to play the organ on a certain style, or or I know how to play the guitar for a certain style, and you want me to do what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and so it raises uh, a host of questions. Um, for example, we often talk about uh, the word authenticity, and that's a slippery word. And I think it's one that is is uh, not 
we shouldn't get too hung up over, we should be aware of. When it comes to uh, the songs and the music of the Global South, uh, do we want to make them all sound like Abide With Me? Right. <laughs> or do we make them all want to sound like uh, What A Friend We Have In Jesus? <laughs> uh, well, there's a problem in that, a kind of a, a co-opting of it to, for our comfort. Um, uh, on the other hand, it would be foolish to think that when a song goes from one culture to another, there's not going to be modifications. There will be. So um, I think becoming aware and uh, is, is the first step. And then I like to put a face on it. Uh, who sang this song in its original context? Uh, what kind of life did they had? I like to think of these songs as someone's individual almost testimony to their faith. And then... Um, that makes it a little bit easier, I find, for people to get a hold of than to say it's a musical style. Well, I can decide whether I like it or I don't like it. It's a little harder to uh, see the song as someone's testimony, uh, witness to their faith, and to say, well, I don't like your witness. Uh, now, there are other questions to ask. Uh, can I identify with that witness? Uh, maybe less or more, or I may be able to say, I can see God working this way in your life, but it's not the way God works with me. That's a different kind of conversation than just sort of a flippant, I don't like this music. Right. Or that makes me uncomfortable, uh, you know, things of that nature. So I'm hoping that uh, a discussion of this kind uh, opens up that kind of way of thinking, uh, which moves us again away from contemporary or traditional, which side am I taking? Well, you, you talk about Vatican II as being kind of a pivotal point in the blossoming of yeah. uh, rural congregational song. Why is that? Uh, I think it's a lot of things. First of all, uh, from a post-colonial perspective, this is right at the time when, uh, for example, much of uh, sub-Saharan Africa was claiming its own, not, but not just sub-Saharan Africa. Other uh, previously colonial entities uh, were, were claiming their independence. Um, and that independence included uh, perhaps in varying degrees a certain autonomy uh, with the colonial churches they were dealing with. So we have a blossoming, blossoming of, of um, uh, various ways they call this, the Christian-initiated or, uh, or locally-initiated uh, expressions of Christianity that were, were not fostered in the West, uh, other kinds of things like that. Uh, this is also related to, I think, an extension of the end of World War II, you know, we have the, the formation of the UN. We have the formation of the World Council of Churches, a, a formal body in which people, Christians across the world, start to talk to each other, to dialogue with each other, and to worship with each other in the, in the uh, uh, assemblies that would take place every seven years or so. Um, and so uh, there's that kind of dialogue. Uh, it took a long time uh, for for example, in the World Council, uh, for uh, the, the conferences to move away from Europe <laughs> and to, you know, to actually have uh, one in Harare, uh, to have one in, in Porto Alegre, Brazil, to have one in Busan, Korea. Uh, the evangelicals were doing some, uh, maybe for some different theological reasons, but some similar kinds of things what the often is called the Lausanne conferences uh, that, that have taken place in various parts of the world. So um, there was something about the post-World War II and then starting to talk to each other. I think technology, uh, all of a sudden now uh, in, in the 1960s, unlike the 1950s and whatever, you could be on a single plane and go from point A to point B as opposed to three planes. Right. <laughs> uh, so just a, a lot of those, a lot of those kinds of issues. So uh, I think it's a confluence. And, and then uh, in the United States, but not exclusively the United States, 
Uh, it was a time of uh, political upheaval. It was a time of uh, cultural upheaval, a, a time of uh, asking questions uh, in various forms, rise of Pentecostalism, the rise of charismatic movements, uh, denominationalism starts to be questioned. And now uh, uh, we're in your denominational uh, you know, moniker is not going to <laughs> necessarily impress that many people. Uh, they're, they're much more interested in, are you an authentic person in what you believe? So, but I think a lot of that starts at that point. Um, and so while things were all getting all shook up, uh, a little a little bit of an Elvis Presley a little late, uh, while things were getting all shook up, now uh, we start to be aware of other voices. And then certain mission bodies, uh, the United Methodists especially, but there were others, um, some, some uh, Baptist uh, and, and uh, some Catholics became aware of from the West of going and actually encouraging and cultivating people to sing in their own uh, traditions. Uh, now that isn't as easy as it sounds because lots of times those traditions were uh, associated with um, uh, various pagan aspects uh, or um, uh, and they were worried about syncretism. Right. I remember being in uh, in Haiti um, gosh 30 years ago now and uh, one of the the issues there was uh, trying to use a music that would really plug into the Haitian spirit but not remind them of voodoo. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and uh, remember in Korea, uh, being in a number of churches, of course, the Western tradition is very strong in the in the South Korean churches. But I went to one that uh, had reinterpreted, had a traditional uh, Korean orchestra and started uh, the worship service with the, the ringing of a Buddhist gong. Mm. <laughs> but that was considered to be, whoa, you know. Right. Uh, so these things are not quite that simple, but um, I think we made a lot of progress, especially with folk idioms in the various countries. And what happens is that people feel a certain affinity. But the other aspect I would hasten to say, and especially in Africa and in Latin America, is the wonderful ability to take Western material and to uh, rework it in ways that are comfortable <laughs> uh, in terms of the ear and the body movement and uh, the use of language and things of that nature. So uh, they often, uh, folks often around the world have a, a wonderful affinity of singing uh, with the equal vigor, uh, a Western hymn that they've recreated as well as individual songs that have come directly from their own cultural context. Uh, so, uh, that spirit of Vatican II uh, was helpful, especially to mainline Protestants as well as, as Catholics. And uh, I would say uh, that first wave of energy that came from that has, if not dissipated as being recreated now, uh, really, especially in the time since this book came out, uh, which is not, what, 2013, so it's not that long ago, but um, now we're looking at the way uh, musics come together in a hybrid fashion. So it may be uh, it may be start off as a contemporary Christian song from from Passion or from Hillsong, but it gets reinterpreted with uh, uh, a um, uh, you know kind of a reggae beat or a, <laughs> or various kinds of. Uh, mixture so the hybridity becomes part of it as opposed to trying to to recreate it authentically i'll make one more point and then i'll take a breath and that is uh, the um uh theologically what i was trying to explore was especially for the mainline uh dominant uh Protestant uh, white person, just to put it right on the table, 
is it's really hard for us to experience the other. Right. With a small O and a capital O. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, we're nervous about it in, in many ways. So since it's my group, I can talk about it a little bit. I can talk about uh, boomers. <laughs> yeah. And I can talk about uh, people with education that don't like to feel like they aren't in charge or incompetent in any way. Uh, they, they want to be on top of things. And the experience of the other leaves us vulnerable. I would say theologically, that's exactly where we need to go from time to time, especially in the events, uh, I would say, of, of the last year and a half, even more than ever, uh, is, is to open ourselves to vulnerability. When I talk about this idea with different groups, uh, it's often interesting to open it up for some stories. Uh, what, when has God spoken to you? And, and oftentimes, of course, it's been at, at the times where they have been the most vulnerable. It could be an illness. It could be a personal loss. It could be all sorts of things. And then I look at the biblical witness, uh, you know, Moses and the burning bush, uh, Mary, this teenage girl uh, with no power. The, the list goes on and on. Uh, uh, even the time that Saul, who became Paul, he, he when when the light hit him, the voice hit him, he was he was uh, you know not on top of things. Uh, so I think it's a condition that opens us up and causes us to listen and to learn, and that's speaking personally from my standpoint, that has been the hardest thing for me to learn. Uh, I'm trained to be in charge and I have a, a you know, a USA passport that takes me and, and certain amount of resources, most any place I want to go in the world. And people expect me to be the authority, even when I'm not. And so learning, learning to, first of all, be okay about being vulnerable and then ways to communicate to various groups and other places that I'm uh, I'm the student now, uh, and that has made it a whole lot more fun. I just wish I would have learned it in twenty at twenty instead of about forty five. But uh, we all have those issues. Well, throughout the book, um, you talk about really different roles, different functions that congregational song plays. You want to describe? Yeah. Uh, I don't have a, a real systematic taxonomy of that, but I think overall what I would say is that song functions more often than not in some form of prayer function. Now, there's my definition of prayer would be broad. Are we talking about prayers of adoration, thanksgiving, uh, uh, praise, uh, prayers of petition, invocation? Uh, invoking, for example, the spirit, uh, even uh, prayer as as uh, at the table in terms of the Eucharistic prayer, uh, prayers of blessing. Now, that isn't the only function of song, but I think in terms of liturgy itself, that is one of the major uh, issues that, that song does, the, the kind of lyrical glue that it offers in holding um, a liturgy together, uh, as opposed to only thinking of it as thematic, uh, only thinking of it as supporting the sermon. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, but very often when I was planning uh, worship uh, in, in local congregation, uh, I had a very good relationship with pastors and we would look in advance and things, but sometimes uh, rather than a piece that always matched the theme of a sermon, uh, I used it more as a response to uh, the scripture, uh, a preparation for prayer or whatever. It would be a classic anthem, but I would use it in those kind of situations. And I would use hymns as a preparation for or response to uh, in some way as opposed to a set piece. Um, and didn't make a big deal out of it, but it started, I think, to take hold. People started to at least intuitively get it. Um, so 
that's that's what I uh, I look at. I think one could use that term also, music and prayer, in a, a in much more specific ways. For example, more of the mantra-like prayers of the Tzai community or other kinds of meditative prayers, uh, and the ecstatic praise of of uh, especially many non-Western uh, groups where dance and and uh, the, the the body is involved. Uh, they stretch us at both ends for most of us in the in the middle that might you know kind of are comfortable, which is not one of my favorite words when it applies to worship. Uh, but we're comfortable on a four to six spectrum when I think this offers us a one to ten possibility. Not in the same service, not all the time. I mean, uh, as I tell uh, church music students, I don't want you to be fired uh, <laughs> by uh, taking this too quickly, too soon. But I'd like to think that if you look back over five years, that you had broadened the way that people pray in in how they use their their song. Um, you would have broadened their vocabulary in in some way. Um, this is a very ecumenical endeavor. Um, and at times even uh, starts to push interfaith. Um, uh, especially I'm thinking around uh, prayers and songs of peace, uh, uh, looking at, uh, you know, how does a Muslim pray for peace? How does a Jew, Jewish context, how do, how do we pray for peace and unity? Um, why can't we sing those songs as well? Uh, so there's uh, the other side of this that is a little bit too large a conversation for now is that there has to be a pedagogical component to all this. Uh, and uh, this is where the music educator in me comes out, not just to teach the music, but to think pedagogically about how you help the unknown become known. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the uh, the uh vague become experienced <laughs> uh, and um, the the thing outside of you become taken into your body. That's the thing about singing that's a little bit different. Um, it's not a part of this book, but one of my current soapboxes is that uh, in looking over uh, a lot of resources and, and history of singing and various styles of worship, uh, I've come to the conclusion that we're really, really good about singing our praise to God, and we're really not very good at all in any style of singing our love of neighbor. Mm. Mm. And as I look at the various synoptic gospels that embody that, it doesn't seem to be a, a, a true-false test or <laughs> a, a ranking one or the other. They seem to be a thoroughly uh, integral to each other. Um, but it's much easier to sing praise the Lord, the almighty, or come thou fount of every blessing, or you name the song, uh, than it is to sing uh, a song that really challenges us. I'm thinking one of the, the, the classic ones is, uh, at the turn of the, uh, 20th century with the, um, social gospel, where across the crowded ways of life, it described this urban, at that time, Northeastern scene. Uh, uh, the haunts of wretchedness and need. Well, that isn't nearly as much fun to sing. <laughs> uh, but the ones, the ones that we've come up with now that people that address this in the last 25 or 30 years, um, I, I like to say, you know, maybe once a service, we need the ouch factor. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I guess I'd go so far as the saying right now in terms of my song, uh, it's a different little layer to put on this kind of discussion we're having, but uh, it's still related. If if the, the church and its liturgy and its mission is not dealing with the environment and is not dealing with love of neighbor, I'm really not quite sure why we're in business. Right. Uh, especially in a, a post-pandemic world, because uh, I don't want to go back to the old normal. Uh, in terms of... I, I wouldn't wish what's happened on anyone. On the other hand, I think it's moved us about 10 years ahead where we, we have to deal 
with the old structures that uh, the way we thought of uh, the church, the, our ecclesiology was being propped up and those structures were getting pretty uh, wobbly. And now we've just got to find some new ways to know what it means to be church, be together, be the, the, the body of Christ. And so uh, I'm kind of glad because otherwise I might not have lived to have had the energy to have, have, have been a part of this, but I think now we have no choice. Uh, and uh, the, I think the good thing is that uh, congregations have learned to become flexible and, uh, and more open uh, and not everything had to be perfect. Uh, and it's not going to be perfect in the future, but maybe while we have this little window of before we move back into our perfectionism and our, our, our ruts, maybe we need to start to ask these questions to go back to this book. Maybe it's a time uh, to move from singing only one or two streams, that's our heart song, to start to adding a few other streams of how others experience uh, the faith and how they articulate it. What is their witness? When I was pastoring, um, one of the challenges for me uh, was that sense that you were talking about of, of my feeling of, of needing them to grow, wanting them to grow and, and nudging them and bringing that ouch factor in, uh, especially in, in being concerned about others. Uh, but at the same time, recognizing that, um, they come to worship beat up, yeah. uh, they come to worship wounded and the comfort factor, that healing pastoral factor, yeah. uh, was an important dimension. And I, and I think that, um, some of the resistance that, that folks feel about the ouch factor is that they're, they, they're ouching enough. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you're. The, the, there's always got to be a, a really sensitive pastoral component to all this. Um, the, the other side of it is um, that uh, if are we, are, are we communicating an authentic gospel if there's no <laughs> no discomfort? <laughs> right. Uh, and, and I mean, everyone faces this, you know, uh, and, and so I don't have a single uh, set plan, you know, for all congregations. As a matter of fact, I, I would despise such a thing uh, because that would start to make it a marketing. So when I work with people on this, these seven streams, the first thing we do is I have them clearly identify where they feel their heart song is. Where do they? And there's no there's no wrong answers, right? <laughs> uh, wherever you start on that is just fine. Then I want them to really make it clear. What is the theology that is primarily being communicated in that heart song for some congregations? So they may have two or, or even three streams, or if they have more than one service, they may have a different heart song for different services. Um, but then, then I ask them on the basis of the mission of the church, uh, we do some a little eth ethnog ethnography and look at the community uh, and various things. What would be over a period of two or three years uh, some streams you might want to broaden and reach out to? Then I quickly say your purpose, for example, of starting to sing more African-American music is not to think that you're going to get African-Americans in the church. If that happens, fine. Your purpose is to sing that music because it's got something to teach you and the people that created it have experiences you need to learn about. <laughs> uh, so uh, I don't like this idea of some kind of cause and effect. If I start singing in Spanish, they will come. Right. Uh, nice movie, you know, if we build it, they'll come, but yeah. not, yeah, right. <laughs> not, not necessarily a, a way to, <laughs> to build the church. We have a lot of churches that were built <laughs> too large and they never came. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I think that this is what you're bringing up and I'm glad you did it is, is that this is an art. It's an art that takes tremendous discernment it takes an art, I think, uh, it's an art that takes um, some consensus among caring people. Uh, 
uh, I don't think a pastor alone can determine uh, when when do I push and when do I back off, etc. When it comes to the song of the people, you know, my own congregations that I've been a part of, they've been as a whole very good at hearing hearing the prophetic word in a sermon, uh, experiencing the prophetic word prayed. It's, we don't have much space for it in our, to put it in our bodies, which is a, another level of absorption. Yeah. And again, I don't think every hymn should be, or even every Sunday one needs to have. But uh, my, my guess is that there's an awful lot of congregations that uh, uh, between 80 and 90% of it is God-centered, or me and God, or, or we and God, and it's really hard to find the, the other. Uh, in terms of how we express uh, our relationship and also uh, our relationship to each other. Also, it's these kind of songs, you just don't say, um, oh, let's take our hymnal and, and turn to it and we'll sing this one of these songs. It doesn't work like that. It's got to be have a context. Um, and it's not done to make one feel guilty. It's done to make one feel aware. <laughs> right. Uh, and and I think so. Uh, there, there's a whole a whole lot of issues uh, involved, and these are the kind of songs that sometimes maybe they're initially best introduced in a, a special teaching session or Sunday school class or in other kinds of uh, outside the worship experiences, or uh, uh, as the church becomes more aware of its community what are the needs of the community and how can we prepare ourselves uh, in, in what we sing? Not for them necessarily, but just to put it in our hearts. Uh, I think if it's seen part of the mission of the church, uh, but there are some tremendous uh, songs, uh, you know, recent things that are, that are available, all sorts of styles. Uh, so I better stop again. <laughs> when I had the, my interview with uh, Mike and Brian at the Hymn Society, part of the conversation was uh, the the question about what is a hymn and and the the spectrum of it it being just synonymous with congregational song, but but are also the the precision uh, of uh, what we normally think of as as a hymnal hymn. Um, but then in throughout the book, you're talking about with the creativity uh, that that indigenous cultures are doing uh, in post-colonial times of how they're taking it and modifying it, uh, how they're incorporating it with uh, with bodily movement, uh, with uh, uh, elements from their culture, instruments from their culture. Uh, and you use the word ontology uh, as a way of trying to uh, get at um helping understand that yeah i, I probably uh, purposely confuse as many people as are more people than i help with that term uh but i i wanted to somehow um introduce a term that had weight that this was this was really a big deal it's more than having more variety um it's it is it is uh, and the word paradigm comes you know could be used it's a paradigm shift but that's kind of a, a cliche uh, and I wanted a term that although not exclusively is largely associated in theological terms with the being of God the nature of God but also the nature of anything <laughs> looking at something ontologically and how do we shake it up how do we shake up our categories in this case moving from traditional to contemporary to opening up and asking basic ontological questions is is a is an eight bar tze piece sung in latin a hymn is a uh, is an african uh uh song that goes on for uh, uh 25 minutes with dance a hymn and repeats the text um uh, uh so uh, when I was uh, taking hymnology, uh, my course was first course was in 1970. 
with a wonderful uh, mentor uh, and then later a colleague, Don Husted. And um, uh, so Don was talking about um, classic hymnody. And of course, he was he also had been with the playing organ for the Billy Graham Crusades. We talked about the gospel song and things. And then just at that time in the early 70s, then you start to get what we call the praise choruses, the scripture songs coming to being some from the charismatic and Pentecostal community. And he was searching for a way to give them a, a place. Uh, and so Don referred to them as hymnlets. Mm. Uh, and uh, the, the trouble with it, it made it sound like a diminutive. Right. Trivialized it a little bit. Yeah. Well, I don't think that was his intent, but we were all, we were all searching. And a chorus seemed too lightweight. I think he thought there was validity there, but was looking for a term. And the, the advantage I had was about coming along about uh, 30 years later and getting some money for research is the, to be in places where they lived as their primary song with that kind, that size of literature, that uh, it's repetitive quality, whatever, and realizing that, oh, this is just a di very different way of processing theology and community and time. Uh, and so uh, a classic hymn with four or five stanzas, you know, basically uh, you've got the same melody, but then stanza one leads to two to three to four to five, and it ends up in a certain way. And it's fairly predictable in length of time. If stanza one takes 45 seconds, roughly times five, and you've got the length. But uh, in what I started to call cyclic structures, uh, then from a, uh, an uh, ethnomusicologist in South Africa, uh, cyclic structures uh, can come in many different musical styles. And they, they help you forget time. So I started to be in places where one could, uh, I really could experience co uh, communities that, that really lived into this uh, cyclic song. And uh, I found it, uh, the first discovery for me was that it wasn't as simple as repetition. Yes, there was an element that repeated over and over again. But the people who knew how to liven or enliven this song, each time it went through its cycle, when it came back, it was a slight variation. For example, you might add a, a percussion instrument. You might add some dance. Someone may sing over the top. Uh, and so there are all sorts of ways to create variations. And then how it would be used in worship. Uh, one of the favorite places to use it in West African worship is, is in the offertory. Uh, you know, you bring your offering down and and you dance it to the front mm. and you sing the cyclic song over and over again. And the offering becomes a joyful, uh, embodied expression of worship. Um, I remember uh, being in one congregation in Nigeria a little over 30 years ago when um, I, um, it was a Thanksgiving Sunday, Harvest Sunday. And so the, the people on that Sunday would bring these foodstuffs, I think maybe some money, but mostly foodstuffs for the pastor and the pastor's family. And the way it, it was organized, I saw as, a, as it uh, unfolded was, well, first the children brought it up, and then the young people brought it up, then the women, then the men, then the church leaders. And they each somehow uh, formed themselves in one procession after another to bring all the food stuffs up singing basically one song. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and I never got bored. Wow. Because uh, one thing about cyclic song, especially in Africa, it usually accompanies uh, action. Yeah. Now, uh, let me take the opposite end of cyclic song with the Jose community. And uh, so no one's dancing in, in the community of Jose when, when they're singing, at least in the, the prayers. But the cyclic song there creates this space uh, that separates you and helps you forget time. Yeah. So you may sing, Jesus, remember me 35 times or more. Uh, but the point is not to count how many times you sing it. It's to establish a steady beat so that you can pray above it. 
your own prayer, but still maintain. And then for there be subtle variations that don't disturb the beat or disturb your prayer, but still add energy. Well, that is a really different thing to process than the four stanzas of a mighty fortress is our God, or, or whichever version of Amazing Grace you sing, or Holy, Holy, Holy. Uh, and it it is a real paradigm shift. But I wasn't, again, happy with that word. <laughs> we have to really take what does it mean to sing together? What does it mean to, to, to sing and worship together? What does it mean to call something a hymn? Uh, the, the earliest definitions of hymn had nothing to do with rhyme scheme and four stanzas. Right. <laughs> that's something that's been imposed, especially over the years in the, in the Victorian and the, and the Reformation. Uh, nothing wrong with that, uh, but uh, we don't have to live with that. At the same time, I think to set up and say we got hymns, we got contemporary Christian. It's interesting because more and more contemporary Christian songs are taking on a refrain, chorus, or even sometimes stanzas uh, uh, like a hymn, and they have a lot of uh, a variety. So um, I think a fluidity there. I see it as a manifestation of the spirit's creativity uh, that is always pushing the edges in terms of our experience and our creativity. Uh, it's interesting in, in um, using these kind of forms in church, in, in, in liturgy, um, the first time I would do it, for example, a Tizay service in most uh, middle-class uh, Protestant churches in the U.S., if I sing a Tizay song about five or six, seven times, they say, okay, I got it. But they're thinking of, I got the words. Yeah. They aren't thinking of it's becoming a mantra-like vehicle for prayer. And uh, I remember doing a Tizay service with a group of South African, Black South African, well, they were white too, but mostly Black South African pastors uh, about 20 years ago. And... Uh, uh, so I was thinking the same thing. Well, they never experienced his A before, so I got to sing it seven, eight times, whatever. So, well, I sang what I, I remember the song. It was Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So we sang that, and I guess we sang it about 10 times. And I thought, well, I'm sure they're done with it. So I started to close it down. And then these, these two uh, black South African pastors next to me kind of let me know in a in a certain technique uh, of the cyclic songs that they weren't done singing with it. So when I got to the end of the phrase, when you come into your, I'm going to slow it down. They go, remember me. And they started to back up. And then we must have sung it another 35, 40 times. I just funny sort of joked to myself. I says, I guess they'll let me know when they're finished. <laughs> but they already understood how to oh, use this yeah. literature. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, it's been really fun to help uh, others broaden this. And, uh, and then I think it also opens up the possibility in, in um, uh, more like mainline worship. Uh, hymns aren't just like three set pieces. Now, I'm all for classic hymnody. Don't get me wrong in the Western style. I love it. But I think the days of singing three or four classic four or five stanza hymns in a service are kind of over mm. Mm. Uh, for the sake of everyone. There's many reasons for that. I love classic Kennedy, but what about the people who are too young to sing it? What about the people who are too old to read it? <laughs> <laughs> what about the people for whom English is a second language? And that's a lot of words to digest. What about the dyslexic folks? The list goes on. Now, it may work for most people, but if you put some cyclic songs, other people can participate too, uh, just on the sheer democracy of the thing <laughs> uh, as such. So um, there, and then I think we move away from uh, congregational song being set pieces to a lyrical flow throughout the, uh, the service. Uh, the Catholics already had this worked out because they they use a lot of ritual music, right. acclamations and responses, whatever. And uh, 
you know, a Catholic organist works very hard. A Protestant organist, they play a prelude and a postlude, and then they get their three hymns, and if they have to accompany the anthem, that's fine. That's hard. Don't get me wrong. That's not easy. But a Catholic organist can never hardly take their hands off. Yeah. My wife had to do that. <laughs> and my, my, uh, where I really got a sense of this was in, in uh, for eight, nine or ten years singing for Reform Synagogue uh, in Louisville. And uh, it was a tapestry of of music of various things, uh, structures, whatever, uh, all throughout the, the Jewish liturgy. And it was extremely, I thought it was fascinating. And I wanted to take that feeling of involvement and flow and different kinds of songs and structures into the Protestant, uh, the Protestant structure. Well, the sense I got from it was more genuinely dialogical. Yeah. You know, yeah. that it's not just us talking to God, uh, that we're listening, that we're, we're interacting uh, more. Yeah, I think it allows one to, uh, one, there's many ways when, when we choose, choose what we're going to sing. Um, I mean, there's musical style, there's the instruments you have available, the voices you have available, the theme. Uh, but sometimes we just stop with that. But, uh, you know, are we balancing uh, our praise to God with our love of neighbor? Are we uh, looking at songs in the first person singular and plural, uh, songs we sing directly to God, second person you, third person? Are we mixing those all up? And those are very subtle things that the average person isn't going to notice, but they're going, those kind. those are the kind of things that, add a certain energy and variety that's more intuitive. Uh, I found the same thing by little by little mixing in the streams. Uh, again, always honoring the heart song, mm -hmm. uh, but introducing carefully others. And then there's, there's a certain subtlety that takes place. Uh, and with those come, am I using only uh, the classic hymn structure? Am I using or do I mix in a refrain and a, uh, a stanza form, which could be a gospel song or lift high the cross or whatever? Am I using some cyclic uh, to mix those structures and makes worship just a whole lot more interesting? The final thing I'd say about it is, uh, and I think I alluded to this in the book one place, my experience has been uh, with the... Uh, just the gift I've had of being in a lot of places around the world is uh, what we're calling now millennials and Z's. Mm -hmm. If we don't engage their bodies in worship, uh, I'm not talking about you know necessarily a Pentecostal kind of uh, expression, but if we don't if we don't have the kind of song where they can can experience their bodies and move at least sway to it or whatever. These people don't want to stand still in any culture. Mm. Mm. And uh, so if there's one thing that's going to make, uh, to give or take uh, 45 or 50 above feel vulnerable, it's that. You know, if you were like, uh, some people were like me, I grew up in a very conservative context in Iowa, and uh, dancing was just right mm -hmm. up there on that list of, you know, drinking and smoking and playing cards. <laughs> And you, you, you just didn't do it. I actually got a list, a, a note in second grade, excusing me from square dancing at school yeah. <laughs> because I'm sure of the illicit, illicit possibilities. Uh, but thank goodness that I got exposed. Now, I can't dance, but I can sway pretty well now. As a matter of fact, I can't stand, I can't stand still on, on, you know, an amazing grace and I start to sway. So uh, too much experience in other places. But I, I think the fact that that's, acceptable it also says something about our worship space uh how we design it the flexibility of the seating um all sorts of things uh that that can change the dimension of it but i i think you know now we stand now we sit and that's our idea of movement right <laughs> is is uh, not going to work and the music can be one of the ways uh to do you know to uh, start to embody that well, our, our time is about up, so I will, I mean, I've got tons of other questions, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you briefly conclude uh, with uh, commenting on, uh, you had said that um, uh, 
what the Tadeum uh, talked about that uh, through the church, the song goes on, but you uh, <laughs> wanted to say that through the song, the church goes on. Yeah, I think it's a, uh, uh, that might be seen as a, a little heretical. Um, Not to me. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, Whenever I, I run across a phrase like that, it's just part of my train. Can I flip that? Does it still work? <laughs> and uh, I would like to say it's a both and situation, and that when it when it's effective, I mean, look at the look at the growth, for example, of the Methodist movement. It was the it was the singing out in the fields. <laughs> look right. at the the revival experience in the in the. 19th and, and 20th centuries that the energy of the singing that brought that brought people together uh look what happened in in the catholic churches when the people started to sing mm -hmm. uh and again i love actually a, a latin mass myself <laughs> and i love a, a choir singing plain songs so this is not to put another structure down uh look what every time uh, when I've been in congregations, so we've been able to worship together, say, with uh, most African-American congregations. People in my congregation leave saying, boy, I wish we could right. experience, uh, you know, this and that. Yeah, <laughs> you, tr you try to do it on a regular basis and they, they get nervous. You yeah, know? They do. <laughs> and and uh, so uh, I think... Um, this is one of, again, going back to the idea that 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 uh, the people's song is in the DNA uh, of our experience. Um, I don't know that it's the only factor about what keeps the church alive, but I think it's one of several barometers that I might look at. Uh, and that has nothing to do with that, about having a congregation where they all hit the right notes. Right. right. <laughs> or... Uh, they all sing at the top of their uh, top of their lungs, uh, uh, or something of that nature. It 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 has to do with um, can they can they find their voice, uh, or are they are they just going to be silent in one form or another? Um, so um, I think it's the flip side of of this of the same coin, and uh, I'm glad that I'm living at a time when I think the creativity, uh, I would call it a, a second Pentecost, the, uh, musically speaking, of the, of the church's song is, is actually leading the way to energy in the church worldwide. Now, uh, of course, there's, um, there's a lot of people who find it disturbing because it's not the song they grew up with or uh, they, they don't think the music is good enough or whatever. Those are, those are not unimportant questions to deal with um but uh i i find it a little a little disingenuous to get stuck uh, at that point uh i think most questions are quite legitimate it's just that if we start to prioritize them and say well if it's new if it's someone else's it's not mine uh that's a cultural bias yeah uh and I'm not asking you to love it uh, like your own heart song. Uh, on the other hand, maybe it's like learning a second language. I didn't understand the English language really and how it functioned until I took Latin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe understanding someone else's heart song helps you appreciate your own more, but also gives you a bigger idea of the nature of God, going back to ontology. <laughs> and a good note to end on. Well, Michael, thank you for being with me. Uh, I am grateful for what you've done in the book and you and your colleagues uh, for what you help us think about. Uh, I'm thankful for your continued work. My pleasure. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project 
by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your prayer.